0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today's case has been in the making for approximately 14 months. It came via a listener recommendation. But there was a book written about today's case and not just a book written by a journalist or a true crime junkie. It was a book written by a widow, a woman who lost her husband in Iraq to a senseless murder. I snagged the book immediately and I read it from cover to cover, only stopping to wipe my sobbing tears as I could feel her pain page by page. The story was so overwhelmingly unbelievable that... I just couldn't gather the courage to tell it. And then, months later, I garnered the courage to write to her, to write to the author, the widow, to write to her to see if she would chat with me. And when she agreed, I was really nervous. But our conversation went great. She's a phenomenal woman who turned tragedy into inspiration. Her name is Barbara Allen. Our call ended, and again, I felt as if I could never do the case justice by telling it. Then one day I picked up the book again and realized that this woman preaches exactly what I hope every one of my listeners takes away at the end of each of my episodes. She teaches vigilance. She reminds us all that sometimes our worst enemies are unconventional because sometimes they serve alongside us. So here I am today, ready to tell you another tragic story, except this time I will have the author's help in answering some of my burning questions so stay tuned for part two, which will be available immediately after you listen to this one. I promise you won't want to miss it. Join me today as I tell you about the double murder of Captain Philip Esposito and Lieutenant Lewis Allen. Now, let's dig in. My main source for today's case is a book written by Barbara Allen titled Front Toward Enemy. Barb is currently working on her third book scheduled to be released in the summer of 2021, so stay tuned. I also had the pleasure of speaking to Barb about today's case, and for that, I am extremely thankful. Some additional resources I used were articles written in Stars and Stripes, The New York Times, and The Times Union. Lewis Allen was only 18 years old when the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed teen joined the Army. It wouldn't take long, though, for this teen to realize he had made a terrible mistake, and he wanted out. So for one reason or another, after serving just a year or two, he managed to leave active duty. It was a relief for him to have some form of freedom back. But if you think that Lou is one of those guys who leaves the military to just mooch off his family while living in his mom's basement. Well, you would be wrong about that. He ended up getting a degree and eventually met his wife, Barbara, who goes by Barb. He went on to become a high school science teacher while he and Barb grew their family by adding four boys to the Allen crew. And boy, I must say, Barb is a saint to raise four boys, and they were very close in age. At the time of today's story, they were six, five, three and one. During their marriage, though, there was nothing that nagged at Lou more than his failed attempt at the army. He confided in Barb that he wanted to return to active duty. (laughs) Now, I imagine Barb's eyes bulging out of her head like, are you freaking kidding me? Mind you, by this point, it's the late 1990s. They just had their first kid. Their life as a couple was just beginning. Barb straight told him, oh, hell no, honey. I am not cut out to live on a military base. (laughs) Lou kind of looked at Barb as he thought of a way that he could scratch the itch of wanting to serve his country while pleasing his wife. And he had a solution. The National Guard. Barb, not wanting to be unreasonable, felt that this was a good compromise. So Lou applied. Since he already had a degree, he ended up getting in and commissioning as an officer. Then 9-11 happened. And as a New York National Guardsman, Lou helped with the recovery efforts at Ground Zero. And this moment changed him forever. It made him realize how fragile life really was. Now, fast forward to fall of 2004. And Lou told Barb that he might have an amazing opportunity to deploy on a peacekeeping mission. Orders would begin summer of 2005, but it would only be for a few months. He was pumped, though, because he was going to be deployed with a good friend of his, Captain Philip Esposito. 30-year-old Phil, as he was known, was a great officer. He was a West Point grad and he was married and had a young baby daughter. And well, as things go, Lou was prepping for this mission when a few months before he was to fly out. He found out, change of plans, which is not uncommon in the military, in the first time since World War II, the New York National Guard was deploying to a combat zone, Iraq to be exact. But it wasn't as dangerous as people thought. Lou would be assigned to the Water Palace, inside the wire, as they say, a place on the lake, and that's where they would spend most of their time. It wasn't a dangerous deployment where they would be going outside the wire all the time. And so, on June 3rd, 2005, 34 year old Lou placed boots on the ground on the new place he'd call home for a few months Camp Danger, Iraq. It was 6 a.m. on June 8, 2005, and the doorbell rang out at the Pennsylvania home of Barb Allen. She and the boys were all fast asleep as Barb jumped at the sound of the doorbell. Who the hell was there? And they better not wake up her boys. She answered the door, and it was Three men, all dressed in their military best. Even though Barb was foggy from just waking up, in the pit of her stomach, this visit kind of made sense. Lou had missed their usual FaceTime date, but he'd only been in Iraq for four days. This couldn't be. One of the men called out to her, Mrs. Allen, Mrs. Allen. As she got tunnel vision, she held onto the wall to keep from collapsing. What in the actual hell is going on here? Is this a dream? Is this a nightmare? If so, someone please wake me up. Everyone was kind of in shock, both Barb and the three men standing at her door. Although no one had quite said anything yet, Barb began to shout, say it, just say it. But it only came out as a whisper. We regret to inform you. Everything else was mumble jumble. All that Barb caught was mortar attack. She wanted to know what happened as one of the men looked down at his cheat sheet and reported that Lou was killed in his sleep. In her book, Front Toward Enemy, Barb describes that in that moment, she thought, oh my gosh, if Lou is actually dead, then I just want to die too. I'm not strong enough for this. But she had to be strong. She had to be strong. And now she had to figure out how to tell her four little boys that their daddy was dead. Synopsizing one of the most difficult conversations I believe Barb has ever had to have with her four kids under the age of seven, she told them, bad guys kill daddy. He tried really, really hard to stay in his body, but his body was too broken. So God took him to heaven. It's sad now, but soon we'll find a new way to be happy. But for now, it's okay to cry hi everyone for anyone who follows me on instagram i recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at disney in front of the disney castle but i posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire defined toned and overall just pleasant to look at so many of you asked me in my dms for my secret and of course my secret is 4am workouts But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, Papa.com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. In the weeks leading up to Lou's deployment, he and Phil, Captain Esposito, his friend, would exchange emails. And it appears that upon the unit's arrival downrange in Iraq and Kuwait, Kuwait first and then Iraq, Phil became aware of some serious supply issues in his unit. Specifically, several night vision goggles, AKA NVGs, had vanished. Now, if I didn't know any better, it wouldn't seem like such a big deal, except NVGs can cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. So this was a big issue in this unit. Phil then began to blame the supply sergeant for the NVG loss. The supply sergeant was a staff sergeant by the name of Alberto Martinez. Of course, when equipment goes missing, it must be reported and investigated. And thus, there was an inquiry into the missing NVGs. The report resulted in both men being held responsible for the loss. Both Captain Esposito as a commander and Sergeant Martinez as a supply non-commissioned officer. They both got in trouble. According to Barb's book, they were found at fault and docked a month's pay. And then even after this, things seemed to be getting worse. On May 18th, 2005, Phil finally asked his leadership for help. He sent an email to a colonel basically telling him that his current supply sergeant was a bag of rocks and he needed help. Phil constantly told Lou over email that when he got into town as the new operations officer, he wanted Lou to focus on supply. Now, this is kind of rare. You don't normally have your new operations officer focus on supply. But Phil felt that's where he should focus his efforts as the commander of the unit. And Lou thought, "Okay, that's fine. I'm organized. Let's do this. Eventually, Lou would be boots in the air on Memorial Day of 2005 on his way to Iraq. When Lou arrived in country, Phil basically tasked him with getting the supply room under control, as he had promised. And Lou thought it would be a piece of cake. But then he started to realize, holy hell, what did I get myself into? This wasn't just a mess. This was a hot mess express. And the guy in charge, Martinez, he was in some hot water. And according to Lou, Martinez was effing pissed. The working dynamic with this National Guard unit was anything but good. Apparently, the entire unit deployed together. But in this case, the company commander was replaced by Captain Phil Esposito. There was no real reason for the change out of the commander, but this led many to be happy. And it also left a lot of unhappy troops. But mostly the unhappy troops came from the supply unit. And listen, deployments are already high stress, regardless of where you're going or when. But you add to that all the human elements, right? The dynamic among the folks going, the family situations many are leaving behind. And when you think about it, it is stressful AF. Now, let me just pause a bit to tell you more about the dynamics between Martinez and the new boss man, Phil Esposito. Back stateside, Martinez was allowed to do whatever he wanted with the supply shop. He could run it however he saw fit. His supply shop was described as a disarray. But if you needed something, guess what? Martinez knew exactly where it was located, whether he gave you a hand receipt for it or properly accounted for it. Well, that's another story. The thing is, now they were going to a war zone and people care about supply when you're going to a war zone or at least Captain Phil Esposito cared more. He didn't want to scrub running the shop. And well, if Phil couldn't get Martinez replaced, well, he was going to ensure that Martinez knew what the hell he was actually doing including having daily, weekly and even monthly sync meetings between the two men. It was during these sync meetings that Phil would call Martinez out on whatever discrepancies needed to be fixed. Martinez, not one to care about the military rank structure, would go head to head with Phil during these meetings. And then once Phil was out of the room, (laughs) Martinez would take that opportunity to unleash some smack talking about the commander including statements of fragging the commander, wishing the commander would get killed by a roadside bomb or other such threats. All those left behind who heard this, just brushing it off as harmless. For those of you wondering what the hell fragging means, according to Stars and Stripes, fragging is military slang for the intentional killing of one's superior officers. Phil, the subject of this comment, had no idea that someone could even think those things let alone say them out loud in the presence of others. And no one bothered to tell Phil that this was being said about him. But Phil, even though he didn't know that Martinez was saying these things about him, he knew that Martinez was willing to go head to head with him in front of these people. So as the commander, he realized, listen, this back and forth with a non-commissioned officer was too much. And he began the process to remove Martinez from his current position as supply NCO. But Phil wasn't just doing this in the quiet of the night. No, no, no. He was actually consulting with the appropriate offices, working with the inspector general office and identifying some of his suspicions that Martinez was actually stealing some pretty expensive equipment. And with this suspicion, he was able to restrict Martinez's access to supply and also restricted Martinez from entering the supply room unaccompanied. Phil was also going to initiate some paperwork against Martinez. And Martinez was well aware of it, and he was heated. He knew that if he got more paperwork, not only would he lose his position while deployed, but he could face losing his stateside position with the guard, and he was not about to let that happen. It was during this time that another unit in Iraq was preparing to redeploy stateside. Martinez visited his supply cohort with the PSYOPs unit. Sergeant H was the supply person for her unit, and as they prepped to leave, She was doing accountability for all of the items in her supply. While Martinez was visiting her, he was scavenging for items for his supply room. Sergeant H told Martinez, hey, you see those Claymore mines and grenades? Well, they are not even on the books. They were left behind by some other folks. And here they are. (gasps) Martinez's eyes lit up. He'd take them. But the shocking thing is that Claymore mines were apparently not even authorized on the base. So how they got there is unknown. Let me take a moment, though, to explain what Claymore mines are, as I had no clue what they were before this case. This description is taken verbatim from Barb's book. And this is a description of Claymores. Quote, these small rectangular devices are filled with several hundred steel ball bearings similar to .22 bullets. The mine is mounted on four metal legs. A wire of about 100 feet leads to a clacker or a clicker that must be depressed to detonate the mine. When the pound and a half layer of composition C4 explosive is ignited, the resulting explosion is tremendous. The area is sprayed with a wall of lethal shrapnel, and the kill zone for 50 meters in front is basically unsurvivable. The casualty zone extends 100 meters forward and within 100 meters to the side and back of the mine. Any individual not sheltered is subject to casualty. Each mine is labeled clearly on the front side, reading front toward enemy. This anti-personnel mine is an ambush weapon, one that is effective only if the enemy's location is known with enough advance notice to mount the weapon. Unroll the wire and take cover, all undetected, before detonating. End quote. On this day, while at the other supply unit, Martinez took various items from Sergeant H.'s supply room, including three Claymore mines and some grenades. He smiled before walking out of the supply room, telling Sergeant H, Don't worry, these items will be put to good use. Martinez then returned back to his office, where he stowed away the boxes filled with the Claymores and grenades, telling the young specialist working supply, Don't bother to inventory those items. And because he was normally the boss, she complied. In the days after Lou's death, Barb was beyond herself. In her book, she describes so vividly how much being a widow sucks, especially a widow who cannot see her husband's dead body right away. She had to rely on third hand knowledge. They told her Lou died in his sleep. The hell he did, she thought. He FaceTimed her and the boys every single night before he went to sleep. And he was supposed to FaceTime her that night before he went to sleep. So there was no way in hell that he died in his sleep because he never called her that night. Barb trusted no one who showed up at her doorstep from the military. Absolutely no one. And you know what? She knew exactly who would tell her the freaking truth. Captain Philip Esposito. He was the one that convinced her husband to take this stupid ass deployment to begin with. So when the casualty officer, Captain L, showed up at her doorstep, Barb demanded to speak to Phil. (gasps) The casualty officer's eyes widened. Barb looked at the man like, speak, speak. When all of a sudden he gave her more news that felt like another gut punch. Captain Esposito was also killed. What in the actual hell? Oh, my gosh. And if you thought the gut punches would stop there, well, you would be wrong, my friend. Hours after discovering that both Lou and Phil were dead, Captain L had some more news. This time, he seemed more nervous to spit it out, but he thought it important to tell Barb, especially because she was a little spitfire. Captain L told Barb, ma'am, the army is opening a criminal investigation into your husband's death. You see, after digging into the circumstances surrounding his death, they believe he may have been killed by someone other than the enemy. Come again now? Barb was confused as all hell. Who in the actual hell goes to Iraq and gets killed by a non-enemy? What does this even mean? Days later, immediately following another tough day for Barb, which was Lou's funeral, Barb learned that an American soldier by the name of Alberto Martinez Had been arrested and charged with Lou and Phil's murders. Barb was beyond herself. What a freaking betrayal to die at the hands of one of your own. So, who the hell is Alberto Martinez? Martinez joined the National Guard in 1990. He was of Puerto Rican descent, but hailed from Troy, New York. He originally attempted to get into the Navy Reserve and Army Reserve, but was denied. He actually scored pretty low in his National Guard entrance exams, but he received a waiver to enter the Guard nonetheless. When not doing his National Guard gig, he worked for UPS. But his time at UPS was not without issues. In fact, do you remember Beanie Babies? Like Beanie Babies? Well, these are like tiny little stuffed animals. Back in the day, they were in high demand. Well, during Martinez's UPS shift, Many of these high demand items were reported stolen. It was believed that Martinez was part of the theft scheme, but not being able to prove it, they ended up firing him. However, Martinez's unemployment wouldn't be for long because he filed a complaint with the union and was ultimately rehired by UPS. But the issues continued, and in 1999, UPS was fed up and they fired him yet again. This time, though, Martinez took it a step further. He hired a lawyer and claimed racial discrimination. In coming to an agreement, UPS agreed to pay his unemployment rather than risk litigation, which sometimes this is not uncommon for big companies to just avoid litigation. They just pay out whatever they can if it's a lower amount. Martinez had a degree in electrical engineering and he was married with two kids. But times were hard in the 90s for the family. Martinez wasn't doing too hot at work because, remember, now he's just collecting unemployment and they were going through a home foreclosure. Martinez always vented to his pals that if he couldn't sell the house before the foreclosure, he should just burn it to the ground. And well, suspiciously, in October of 2002, Martinez doubled his homeowner's insurance to bring it up to two hundred and twenty six thousand dollars. Not even two months later, after he increased his homeowner's insurance, in early December, Martinez had a bad headache. He called into work sick that day and he took some meds and fell asleep. When he woke up a few hours later, he miraculously felt better. But of course, instead of heading back to work, he called a friend and they headed to a movie. Unbeknownst to Martinez, allegedly, while he was at the movies, his house caught fire. The fire department put the fire out and determined the fire was started by some faulty electrical wiring. Martinez tried to file a claim with the homeowner's insurance. But after the insurance company sent out an adjuster and did their own mini investigation, they felt it was arson. And so they refused to pay out. So what did Martinez do? He ended up suing the insurance company for close to two hundred thousand dollars. Who knows what happened there, but, you know, you kind of get the picture about this guy. Things in the criminal justice system and military justice system always move fast and slow, fast and slow. And in this case, it was no different. Before the families knew it, it was time for the Article 32 hearing, which is the military equivalent of a preliminary hearing. And Barb and Siobhan, Phil's wife, had every intention of being present. But there was one little problem. The army wanted to have the Article 32 hearing in Iraq. Now, how the hell were they going to get two civilians into Iraq for an Article 32 hearing? So, of course, there was a change of plans. The Article 32 hearing would take place in Kuwait. And with that, the ladies were ready to board the plane when, ring, ring, change of plans. The hearing was being pushed because Martinez had fired his attorneys And now he needed new representation. The new hearing was scheduled for October 31st, 2005. The Article 32 hearing is detailed very well in Barb's book. And here is just a synopsis of what takes place. Like this is like a little tiny synopsis of what takes place. Captain P, he describes sitting in his room in the water palace on the night of the explosion. It was about 9.30 p.m. He was sitting in his bed reading a book when all of a sudden he was rocked by the sound and shaking of a deafening explosion, followed by two more explosions. He exited his room, sure someone might need help. And as he ran to a nearby room, he heard someone yelling, it's Lieutenant Allen, somebody help me. Captain P barged into the room. He saw Phil laying motionless, covered in blood. So he ran to Lou, who was clearly hurt, but coherent. Captain P tried to calm Lou down and eventually medics arrived and took both men away. On the stand, Captain P not only testified to what he saw that night, but he also testified about some things that Martinez had previously told him. For example, Martinez had actually said to Captain P, quote, he couldn't wait to frag that fuck." in regards to he he was talking about Phil. Captain P also heard Martinez say, quote, I hate Esposito and I'm going to frag him, end quote. Staff Sergeant W testified that he was in the showers near the waterhouse when the explosions occurred and he saw that the walls were about to come down. So he ran outside to seek cover. And that's when he looked around the corner of where he was hiding and he saw Martinez standing in the middle of the road looking up at the explosion, not running for cover as most everyone else. Once all the explosions occurred and it was eerily quiet, that's when he heard it. Lou's cries from inside the water palace, asking, begging for help. This was yet another witness who testified that a few months earlier, he heard Martinez discuss how he couldn't wait for Phil to get hit. Staff Sergeant W. had firsthand knowledge that Martinez was disgruntled as hell. It had only been 10 days prior that Martinez had been removed from his position in supply. Staff Sergeant T. then testified, and he would paint the picture extremely clear about what Phil and Lou were actually doing when they were hit by the explosion. Staff Sergeant T, together with Phil and Lou, well, they were by a window playing the game Risk. A little before 9.30 p.m., literally minutes, Staff Sergeant T had been eliminated from the game, and he joked around with Phil and Lou before leaving to take a shower. And it was then that the explosion occurred. Had he stayed in that room even just a few minutes longer, he might not be testifying at the hearing. He might actually be dead. Well, Staff Sergeant T also testified that earlier that day, Staff Sergeant T and Phil were in the room, which the room they were in, by the way, was Phil's office. When in walked Martinez to chat, Martinez would have had the opportunity at this point to see the new room set up. The table was pulled up close to the window with games on top of it. Various other witnesses testified and eventually it was returned to the preliminary hearing officer who would make a recommendation whether to refer the case to General Court Martial. And if so, should it be referred as capital, meaning should the government seek the death penalty if there were enough aggravating factors? After reviewing all the evidence presented, the hearing officer recommended referring the case as capital to a general court-martial. Additional charges were also recommended, including unlawful disposition of government property, unlawful possession of alcohol and unlawful possession of a flare gun. But the prosecution would need to conduct yet another Article 32 hearing for these charges. And while everyone was hoping for quick resolution, they had to do an entire new Article 32 hearing again for these new potential charges. And this time, the additional 32 hearing would take place at Fort Bragg. At this hearing, Sergeant H testified that she had previously witnessed Martinez give army issued stuff to an Iraqi national. One such item was a printer in exchange for either a bike or a motorcycle. The Iraqi National was actually called to testify at the Article 32 hearing and confirmed this story. But he clarified that it was more like 20 printers and three or four fax machines. Sergeant H also testified that she was with Martinez when he turned in paperwork claiming to be returning equipment. But he did not, in fact, return the equipment. She also saw Martinez in possession of a 7 millimeter Iraqi pistol that he said was his. And then she testified to something that might seem disturbing to many. On the stand, she admitted that falsifying documents is common practice in the supply world, especially when things are lost or unaccounted for. <laughs> Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in the detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours, And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Over a year and a half after the double murder, the charges were referred to trial. But then the victims' families who so desperately wanted to put this chapter of their lives behind them so that they could properly mourn, well, they were hit with yet another gut punch. The defense filed a motion to sever the charges. They wanted to have two trials, one trial for the murders and one for the other miscellaneous charges, such as the misappropriation of equipment, etc. And the defense was successful in getting those charges bifurcated. And then there would be arraignment and pretrial motions and lots of back and forth, back and forth. And one of the things that Barb points out is that while the defense team stayed intact, meaning none of the people changed out, the prosecution attorneys changed out various times. There was only one attorney that was there from the very beginning who stayed until the actual prosecution. And guess what? Even the military judge at some point had to step aside, requiring a new judge to step in. Eventually, though, through pretrial motions and trial, the story of what actually happened or the government's version of what happened began to emerge. The prosecution's opening statements began with direct quotes from Martinez's own mouth. Quote, the bastard is trying to ruin my life. I am going to burn him. End quote. Quote, I hate that mother. I am going to frag that mother. End quote. The prosecution presented evidence that for days leading up to the murders, Martinez and another person had done some surveillance on Phil to see what his movements were at night. Then, on June 7th, there was a sandstorm outside when Martinez went to check in with Phil. He entered the office and saw the new setup. He knew this would be the perfect night for the attack. Eventually, he went outside and allegedly set the Claymore mine right outside the window he laced the wire across the street and hid either inside the portageon or behind it before he pressed the clicker to cause the explosion at the window then immediately after that he threw three grenades to distract everyone to make them believe this was an enemy attack at the trial the victim's family would often look over to the man they believed killed their loved one all the while, Martinez sat at the defense table and, quote, looked bored as if we were wasting his time, end quote. And well, today, meaning today, as I tell the story, because of the case that occurred last year with Vanessa Guillen, we know that CID doesn't always do a stellar job with investigations, right? And while well, the investigation into this double murder was not exempt from errors, one of the things that occurred in this case, which I believe is unheard of, Is that when Martinez was arrested, he was taken and detained in the detainee internment facility, the DIF. This is the place where they normally hold Iraqi detainees while pending interrogation. And the bigger problem was that no one had actually ordered Martinez be confined at all. So it was like an unlawful arrest. Instead, they should have taken him to the CID office to be interviewed. But the two guys brought him there to the DIF instead. And it wasn't until six hours later that CID was looking for Martinez that they learned of his whereabouts and they immediately went to get him, probably realizing the giant error that had occurred. But even when Martinez met with CID, he was willing to speak, even granting them consent to search his room. He acknowledged that he and Phil had beef and apparently he showed great disdain, explaining how he felt and that Phil thought who the hell he was. But Martinez claimed he was just in the Portajon john when the explosion occurred. He had nothing to do with it. Even though Martinez didn't admit to anything, his statement was still useful for the prosecution. But at trial, Martinez's defense team argued that Martinez's statement and the things discovered from his room were the result of an illegal arrest. Therefore, it should not be introduced at trial. And I'll be darned, the judge ruled in favor of the defense. And the prosecution would need to proceed without this evidence. The actual trial for the double murders of Captain Phil Esposito and Lieutenant Lewis Allen began on October 22, 2008. I won't go into all the details as much as Barb did in her book. But do you remember Staff Sergeant W who had testified at the Article 32 hearing about seeing Martinez in the middle of the road? Well, of course, he testified at trial. But this time, he added that following the explosion, he and Martinez had some pretty uncomfortable exchanges, exchanges that made him believe something was up. First exchange was after the explosion. They were passing each other in the hallway when Staff Sergeant W said hi to Martinez. But Martinez was not in the mood to talk. Instead, Martinez told Sergeant W. So I heard you spoke to CID. How long was your interview? Martinez waited for a response and then abruptly walked off. So that was the first incident. The second incident was when Staff Sergeant W. was in his classroom when in walked Martinez wanting to know exactly what Sergeant W. told CID. That was the second thing. And the third thing was when Sergeant W. was sitting in his room in the water palace, meaning like in his sleeping room, when in barged Martinez uninvited. He had never visited Sergeant W before, so this was kind of shocking. Also, he didn't knock. Martinez then said he was just in the area and wanted to say hi. But then, as he looked around, taking in the configuration of the room, he told Sergeant W, Wow, there's a lot of concrete over your head. The encounter was sufficient for Sergeant W to keep his hand near his handgun, just in case Martinez tried any funny business. Martinez just saying he just wanted to clear his name. Army investigators, also known as CID agents, they also testified at trial that it's not protocol to investigate combat deaths. They usually show up, they do a cursory review, and it's basically open and shut, which is still shocking. And that's exactly what they did when they heard about Phil and Lou's death by explosion. But the next day, the CID agent was called back. Someone believed this was a homicide. By this point, it had been 13 hours since the explosion. And when they got there, people were already in that room, cleaning up the blood, moving things around. I mean, this is never good for an investigation. CID explained that within a few weeks of the deaths, it was clear that there was only one suspect in this case. Martinez. He was near the scene. He was being disciplined by one of the people who is now dead. He had threatened the commander's life on numerous occasions to whoever would listen. He had nightly debrief meetings with Phil. And on this night... He actually knew full well that the table had been moved to be near the window. And let's not forget that Martinez was pending an Article 15. There was just a slew of things that pointed to Martinez. A person had even come forward to mention that it appeared that Martinez had been doing practice runs with a possible lookout. Oh, and one more thing. The day after the explosion, Martinez was the only person in the entire forward operating base, the FOB, who went to sick hall claiming he had ringing in his ear from the explosion. Everyone just thought it was suspicious that he was so close to the explosion as to suffer ear problems. But no one else had reported with the same issues. But CID argued they didn't have tunnel vision when investigating this case. They had actually followed up with other potential leads and those suspects were subsequently eliminated as suspects. But there was one alternative suspect that the defense really honed in on a soldier who was not only having weight management problems, but a soldier who had been told to take the safe from Phil's room after the explosion. And instead of turning it in right away, he waited a few days. But why? The defense asked. But CID was trying. CID even had the lake behind the water palace drained to look for more evidence. They were clearly trying to find all the evidence they needed. Witness after witness testified about Martinez's disdain for fail and all of the comments he made. But defense always came up and added some form of doubt in the members' minds. Was this witness really telling the truth? Some witnesses, having shot themselves in the foot years prior, when they either initially told CID one version of events and then months later told a different version of events. This is not uncommon. And defense pounced like a fierce lion protecting its baby cub. In this case, the baby cub being Sergeant Martinez. Defense also honed in on this being a giant conspiracy because they felt that CID didn't want to do their actual job. Defense said Martinez was nothing but an innocent bystander. The government and CID were just too lazy to actually do their job and find the real killer. It was now December 4th, 2008, weeks, months since the trial began, and it was verdict day. Everyone's stomach was in knots. What would it be? Everyone piled into the courtroom, sitting tightly next to each other. Everything so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. The 14 panel jury walked into the courtroom. Then the jury forewoman read the verdict. As to the charge of premeditated murder, Not guilty. A gasp of air rocked the courtroom. The jury left. Phil's wife yelled, this is the United States, wondering how the hell they could get it so wrong. Barb asked, wait, 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 where are they going? Are they going to keep deliberating? But she knew full well. That was it. It was over. But that didn't keep her from letting Mama Bear out as she leaped out of her chair and shouted, quote, You murdered my husband, you piece of shit, end quote. Back in the prosecutor's offices, Siobhan was able to stand and spoke quietly while Barb all just about fell apart. But she did find it inside her to stop and ask the prosecutors, is there any chance, any chance that Martinez was actually innocent? The prosecutors shaking their head, no and Barb wondering, how could this have happened? The victims' families were sure there could be no more information on this case that could shock them more than this acquittal. But like this entire case, of course there can be. Word eventually leaked that less than a year after the murders and two years before the actual trial, Martinez and his defense team had agreed to plead guilty. Wait, what? The proposed plea agreement... Caveats from the defense were Martinez agreeing to plead guilty to second degree murder, removing the death penalty from the table and removing life without the possibility of parole. Basically, what this means is he would plead guilty to second degree murder and be sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after serving just 10 years. But the families were never consulted on the plea agreement and the plea was denied. There could be a lot of reasons for the denial, right, including the fact that he was not agreeing to the premeditation aspect of the crime, which in this case, it's either premeditated or you didn't do it. There's no real I accidentally detonated a mine that killed two people scenario that could we could even fathom up, you know, but in considering plea agreements, you should also weigh the evidence. And in this case, all the evidence was circumstantial no one actually saw him place the mine and push the button and i didn't see any mention of dna evidence so there's always that lack of like direct evidence but you know hindsight is 2020 so after he was acquitted and you learn about a potential plea agreement you always think we should have just took the dang plea agreement right cuz then he would at least be spending some form of time in jail and the person would have a conviction right Another blow came when they were told that the government would not be pursuing a second court-martial for the lower-level charges. The case against Martinez, as they knew it, was closed. After the acquittal, Martinez told the Times Union that he was very, very innocent, but he expected a guilty verdict. Martinez said, quote, When the jurors came out of the deliberating room, I thought I was going to be convicted, and it felt like I was dropping into a bottomless pit, end quote. On the other hand, while Martinez claimed a victory, Lou's mom was infuriated by the verdict, blaming the judge and saying that the jury's verdict killed her son all over again. Alberto Martinez went on to be honorably discharged from the military. And from everything that I read, it appears he lay pretty low for the remainder of his life. Then in 2017, various media outlets reported that Alberto Martinez died in Florida of unknown reasons. Sadly, it was then that the families of both victims, Phil and Lou, were able to feel at ease. I do want to point out that the law is the law, and Mr. Martinez was acquitted of all murder charges. The jury spoke, and there is nothing anyone can do to change that. That being said, Phil and Lou's death is technically still unsolved. Remember at the top of this episode, I told you how Barb felt initially upon learning of her husband's death. She felt that she wanted to die, too, in that moment. In the book that she wrote many years ago, Barb wrote that she feels ashamed that immediately upon learning about Lou's death, she wished she could also die. She feels or felt ashamed to be the type of mom that would prefer death than the type of mom who would want to help her kids through their own grief. But she finds solace in trying to make it up to her kids and also in asking God to forgive her for those initial death wishes. Today, I get the chance to talk to Barb so that she can explain to us her process throughout the last 15 years. After following her current journey for the last year, I feel confident that you will want to stick around to hear from this courageous woman. However, due to the length of this episode and due to the length of my interview with Barb, I have decided to break this episode into two parts. However, both parts are going to be available at the same exact time. All right, True Crime Army, I hope that you will join me in part two, where you get to hear an open conversation with Barbara Allen. She is an amazing woman. She wrote an amazing book, and she really is inspirational for people who are grieving. That's it for right now. Make sure you go over and listen to part two. If we have any new listeners today, I hope that you'll stick around. There are plenty of binge-worthy episodes in the Military Murder Library, and there are many more stories to come. For more Mama Margot throughout the week, make sure that you follow me on social media, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, and on Facebook at Military True Crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my Boot Camp and Hire fan club members. This week's newest assistant producer is Hope H, and the music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. <laughs> Shh, let's podcast.